please open your Bibles with me to Jonah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Now if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 12 and we're going to begin reading at verse 38 to 42. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. This is God's word. So far in this book of Jonah, uh, bit of a recap, chapter 1, God called his prophet, but Jonah headed off in the opposite direction, boarded a ship for Tarshish. He thought he could escape God's commission to go to Nineveh, but he was wrong. We saw he was wrong. God sent that huge storm on the sea. The sailors were distressed on the ship. Eventually, they drew lots. It was Jonah. They cast Jonah overboard, and the storm abated. The end of chapter 1, we see right at the very end, God sent a fish to miraculously save and deliver uh, Jonah. And last week we looked at Jonah's prayer inside that fish uh, where he uh, uh, thanked God for the deliverance, but we raised a few questions about Jonah's attitude. Um, Right at the end of the chapter 2, the fish vomited uh, Jonah back on the land And uh, that's where we arrive at the beginning of chapter 3. Remarkably, Jonah is given a second chance, a second chance to obey God. 
We love second chances, don't we? When we have second chances, the Matildas had a second chance this week, didn't they? Uh, They were beaten by Nigeria. They're on the edge of being kicked out of the World Cup and they played uh, Canada. Canada's ranked ahead of Australia in in the rankings, but we beat Canada... Notice we, we beat Canada uh, 4-0 to advance into the group of 16. Here we go, I've got a photo. They look pretty excited, don't they? Uh, Second chances are great. Uh, Give you a chance to get back up on top, to fix your mistakes. We love second chances. Look at their faces, so excited. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel keeps getting second chances. All through their history, God keeps giving them a second, third, fourth chance even. Here's Jonah's second chance. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh, proclaim the message I give you. What does Jonah do? Well, he learnt. Verse 3, this time he goes. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Now, we already learnt, we're not told now, but we learnt back in chapter 1 that Nineveh was also a very wicked city, full of violence. But here, we learn that it's a very large city. Another way of translating that same phrase is that it is a great city to God, which may not only suggest its size, but also that God cares about the people in this city. It's a great city for him. Archaeologists tell us that the city was uh, about one and a half kilometres wide. Uh, You can see the miles there. There's there's the kilometres. About one and a half kilometres wide. Uh, So the three days that's mentioned here, it just just talks about a three-day walk, which is a little bit ambiguous. Some suggest it would be the trip around, but, you know, One and a half kilometres isn't going to take you three days to walk around. You could do it if you're fit in about 20 minutes, uh, uh, I think. I think what it probably refers to is the time that it would take Jonah to go to every section of the city to make sure that they'd heard as he visited around all the, the different places in the city, made sure that everyone heard the message. What was the message? Well, it's the message that God gives him in verse 2. And we see that in verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In the Hebrew, again, this message is only five words, five words long. What we have here in Jonah could be a summary of the message. Jonah may have said a whole lot more and we've just got a summary statement here. Or it could indicate that Jonah went, but really his heart wasn't in it. He was going to do the bare minimum to do what God had told him to do. Well, it may only be um, five words, but there's actually a lot packed into these five words. Uh, First, and there's a couple of things here. First, the, the, the 40 days, 40 more days. We know from other places in the Old Testament that 40 days is a significant period of time. Noah's flood, well the flood in Noah's day was uh, 40 days. After Israel built the golden calf and uh, brought 
God's judgment on them, Moses interceded for the Israelites for 40 days. It's also 40 days was the time that Moses was up the mountain receiving instructions from God. And there's other instances of 40 days as well. What it seems to indicate is that the 40 days is giving the people plenty of time to respond to the message. It's giving them time to repent. And we know this because God in chapter 4 verse 2 is said to be slow to anger. God is slow to anger. He is patient. He's giving them plenty of opportunity to turn back from their evil. So that 40 days is significant. It speaks of God's patience. Another interesting thing in the message is that final word, overthrown. Um, Overturned, I think it was in uh, the other translation that was, was, was read for us. It's the word that actually in the Old Testament elsewhere also describes God's destruction. Back in Genesis 19, there were two wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, in Abraham's day. And these become uh, cities that are remembered throughout Israel's history because of the judgment that God brought on them for their wickedness, their violence, their immorality. The Lord rained down burning sulphur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew, there's the word, overthrew, overthrew uh, this city. And it seems that this is what's going to happen to Nineveh as well. So Nineveh is, because it's this wicked city, we may think it's going to receive its judgments. That's the way the people understand it. In verse 9, uh, the king says, Who knows God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger and will not perish. See, he understood it in terms of God's coming judgments. But the interesting thing is that that same word overturns can also be have the sense of uh, people turning around their lives and so transforming themselves so the message that Jonah's preaching could also be interpreted or translated in 40 days Nineveh will transform itself the message has that double meaning and it's interesting that that's what we see happens doesn't it it doesn't even take 40 days and Nineveh has transformed itself uh, one commentator Desi Alexander um, who's giving the more college lectures in a couple of weeks' time, actually. Uh, he was my uh, supervisor. Uh, over, he lives over in Ireland. Uh, he says, um, in his commentary on Jonah, he says, although Nineveh was not overturned in terms of judgment, it did experience a turnaround, as we'll see. Another five words. One of the other words that's really interesting as well is that word that's translated in our NIVs as more, 40 more days. That word is also ambiguous. It could mean, as it seems to be implied here, at the end of the 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. But it could also mean during, it could also translate the same word as during the 40 days. So at some point during the 40 days, Nineveh will overturn itself. It will, it will be transformed. And that's what happens, as we'll see. The people of Nineveh might have heard God speaking a message of judgment, but they also repent in the very first day, don't they? And it's very clever in the way that the book is written. Both of these statements are true. They repent on the first day. Verse 5, the Ninevites 
believed God and they're transformed. A fast was proclaimed. All of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. At the end of chapter 1, remember we saw the sailors? They came to see God's, God's control over the weather, calmed the storm, and they repent. They fear God. They pray to him. They offer sacrifices. They make vows. And here it is also with the people of Nineveh. They are said to believe in God. That's what the great Abraham was said to do. Back in Genesis 15 verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and God credited to him as righteousness. That's the way you're to treat the God of the Bible. You're to believe in him. And that's what the Ninevites are said to do. They, they fast and put on sackcloth. Again, these were Israelite practices like sacrifice and making vows. The Ninevites are doing the things that the Israelites should do. Fasting was giving up food so that you could pray. Now, food's pretty important, isn't it? But fasting demonstrated that there's something more important than food. Sackcloth was a kind of coarse material that you'd wear next to your skin. It was made of goat's hair. It was a, a garment of, of, of lament, of pain, of, 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 of calling out to God. It was what you'd wear at a funeral if you were sad. It was, it was a sign of being repentant. And this is what the Ninevites put on. Then we're told not only do the Ninevites do this, but the king does it as well. In verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. What he's effectively doing is taking off those signs of kingship and humbling himself, humiliating himself before God, Jonah's God, the true God, the living God, He's recognising that even though he's the king, there's someone who's a higher king than him, the Lord in heaven. I think the way that the narrative's told too, the fact that the people's repentance is told before the king's repentance indicates that the, the people's repentance is genuine. They're not repenting just because the king told them to. They hear the message, they repent, then the king repents. See, in the Old Testament, this repentance of the king truly is astonishing. It's a little bit like the repentance of the mighty Babylonian king in the days of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar. It's astonishing. See, we, we get caught up with the, 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 the Jonah surviving in the fish. Now, that's a miracle, but this is even more of a miracle, if you like, where... Uh, uh, the king, the mighty king of Nineveh, this powerful empire, hears the message preached through Jonah and he turns to God. It's astonishing. And yet the same thing happens today. Uh, people hear the message of God and repent. I'm reminded of uh, Nathan Durst. He's the pastor of Orange Baptist Church. Uh, when he was uh, newly married, early years of marriage, his marriage wasn't going so well, he thought that his wife was having an affair. Every Sunday night she'd go off to church 
he was not sure what she was doing there. And so one Sunday he decided he was going to find this fella. He went along to church, carrying Bar Baptist, and he heard the message of God. He heard God's word. He became a Christian there and then on that night and it turned his life around. As I said, he's now the pastor of Orange Baptist Church. God's word still operates this way today. I think sometimes we underestimate the power of God's word, don't we? God's word can change human lives. Uh, It's mighty enough to turn around the life of a king and a queen, as we've seen. And so the king here issues this decree. he, He calls out to God, but he issues this proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. In verse 7, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let them, people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Now, these are very extreme measures, aren't they? And not only does it include the humans, it goes right down to the animals, the herds, which probably included oxen and the flocks of sheep. Now, some commentators, when you read the commentaries, they suggest this is comical, as if the animals would do these kinds of things. But I think that misunderstands what's going on here. I think mentioning the animals isn't meant to make it funny. It's not a parody. It shows the gravity with which the king and the people treat the message of Jonah, the seriousness with which they take God's words. See, domestic animals would have need caring for. Requiring them to fast means that the people aren't caring for the animals. Rather, they've got something even more important than caring for their animals. They're able to devote themselves to prayer and to repentance. But it's not just that the animals are to fast, they're also not to drink You can imagine the animals quickly getting distressed at this point and crying out themselves. The wailing of the animals would contribute with the cries of the people uh, so that they earnestly show their repentance. The king's call in verse 8, let them give up their evil ways and their violence is a call to be transformed, isn't it? Not just crying out but changing in their way that they treat one another in the violence that has overcome their community. It's a call to give up. This idea of repent isn't just feeling sorry. It's not just doing, well, it's not doing penance, as early translations had. It's actually um, uh, turning from a life of sin, turning to God. It's uh, not something that, it's something that you do uh, when you turn, become a Christian, but it's also the life of the Christian too. We continue to live lives of turning from sin, turning to God. It's the daily experience of the Christian. The king of Nineveh calls on the Ninevites to repent of their evil ways and violence. He's unlike... Remember last week, Jonah never confessed his sin. He never confessed that what he'd done in chapter 1 was wrong, running away from the Lord. But here, the king of Nineveh confesses. He doesn't try to sweep it under the carpet, pretend it doesn't there, it's not there. He confesses their evil and their violence. And then he gives his reason for why they should do this in verse 9. Who knows? 
God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. He doesn't want to die. Notice that little phrase, who knows? Who knows? For the king of Nineveh is just a hope. He hopes that God will show compassion. God's compassion is at the heart of this book of Jonah. We're going to come back and look at that next week when we look at Jonah chapter 4 verse 2. Indeed, in chapter 4, it's what Jonah really struggles with, this compassion of God. He doesn't think the Ninevites deserve God's compassion because of their violence and the way that they treat other nations. But the pagan king of Nineveh hopes that God might show them compassion. He says, who knows? Who knows? I don't know for certain, but it's worth throwing our lot in with God just to see. Interesting thing, though, is that Jonah does know for certain that God will show compassion. Look at 4 verse 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Jonah knows it for certain. Why does Jonah have such a problem with God's compassion? That's next week. But what the pagan king of Nineveh just hopes for is actually what he receives in verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. God relented from the message he gave Jonah that they would be destroyed. See, elsewhere God does relent. We're given story time and time again in the Old Testament where the prophets intercede for God's people. God announces judgment on the people. The prophets intercede. They cry out on behalf of the people and God relents from the judgment that he'd said he'd bring. So when, again, the Israelites built the golden calf, God initially said, I'm going to come down and destroy them all and start again. But Moses interceded, oh Lord, what about your promises to Abraham? What about what you've done? You know, and God relented. He still sent judgment, but he didn't wipe them out like he initially said that he would. Uh, if you look at the prophet Amos, Amos is in the 8th century, same time as Jonah. He's given visions of God's coming judgment as well. Locusts and fire and Amos intercedes, Lord, please don't send those judgments. And God relents. He, he doesn't send the judgments. And here what we see is that God relents also when non-Israelites cry out to him for mercy. Jonah chapter 4 verse 2 also describes God as a God who relents from sending calamity. It's part of who he is. If people cry out to him, he hears, he shows mercy. Now this causes some people problems. They say, well, doesn't other parts of the Bible say that God is unchanging? How can God be unchanging and relent? Well, I think when the Bible speaks of God being unchanging, what it's referring to is God being unchanging in his character. God is both merciful and just, as we see in chapter 4, verse 2. So that when people rebel against him, they bring themselves under his judgment. 
But when a sinful person under his judgment repents, turns back from that sin, turns back from that evil, turns back from the violence, God is consistent with his character and he shows them mercy. He treats the repentant with grace, with compassion, with loving kindness. God is a relational God so that when people treat him differently, he treats them differently. But his character as both a just and merciful God does not change. He is unchanging in who he is. That's why even though the pagan king is uncertain whether God will relent, Jonah knows that about God for sure. Because God has shown himself throughout history to be consistent with his character. More about that next week as well. But the call to come back to God, to repent, to turn back to him, is what we see here in Jonah. It's one of the central messages of the Old Testament prophets, actually. Um, Jonah is very unusual amongst the prophets because Jonah's calling non-Israelites to repent. Most of Israel's prophets are calling Israel, the people of Judah particularly, to repent, to turn back to him. At college last week, we looked at the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was frustrated. God had sent them to the people to call them to repent and they just seemed unable. He says, can an Ethiopian change the colour of his skin? Can a leopard change its spots? Neither can you, Israel, do good. Neither can you, who who are accustomed to doing evil, do good. It doesn't seem possible. Remember the call of Isaiah in chapter 6. He's sent to a people whose eyes are blind, whose ears are stopped, who don't seem able to understand and hear the message. And I'm sure part of the message of this book of Jonah to its original readers, to its Jewish readers, was if God is so ready to show mercy to non-Israelites, even those as wicked as the Ninevites, how much will he show mercy to his own people who return to him? If only you would return. And I think we see the same kind of thing in the New Testament as well. The story of the conversion of the Gentiles um, in the early church. Paul says in Romans 11 verse 11, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious, to make them jealous, that they might realise what a good thing they have with God and turn back to him because he's so eager to forgive. We see the same in Jesus' day. We had it read uh, from Matthew's Gospel where uh, in Matthew 12 the religious leaders were actually plotting against Jesus. They wanted to do away with him. They were requesting a sign. Oh, you you make all these claims. Show us who you are. Send us a sign. And Jesus responds, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. None will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. See, Jesus is saying if the people of Nineveh, non-Israelites, enemies of God's people, if they could repent at the preaching of such a reluctant prophet, Jonah, even though they never even witnessed 
Jesus or Jonah's death and resurrection. Well, jo- well they didn't re- 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 even witness what had happened to Jonah in the fish, these people of Nineveh. But if they could repent, why couldn't the people in Jesus' generation, given all that they had seen, all that they had heard, given the testimony of the prophets that they had in their own Bibles, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment and condemn it. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here. And I guess we extend that to our day, don't we? Because Jesus is the one greater than Jonah. And his ministry, his life was witnessed. The sign of death and resurrection was seen by so many and recorded for us by so many in our Bibles. We have the eyewitness testimonies. They show us that Jesus is so much greater than Jonah. Jonah preached repentance, but not forgiveness, did he? There's nothing in Jonah about the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus preached repentance from God's judgment, from repentance from sin, God's coming judgment, but also forgiveness. We see in uh, the early church, Peter says, repent then, turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing might come from the Lord. See, Jesus has brought forgiveness, a message of forgiveness, a message of blessing, times of refreshing. Jonah and Jesus are contrasted in terms of their obedience too. Jonah was the reluctant prophet. Jesus was the word become flesh. He went willingly, doing his father's will, laying down his life for us. And so now God offers each of us a second chance through Jesus, forgiving our sins and offering us a fresh start. We need no, have no doubts. We don't have to say we'll repent uh, and if only, or uh, how does he put it? Um, Um... uh, he, he, he says God may yet relent. Who knows? Who knows? That's the word I was looking for. Who knows? We don't have to think who knows. We know. We know for certain. Um, uh, we can know for certain through Jesus that God will show mercy to all who turn to him. But when Jesus returns to judge the worlds, those who've rejected him will be condemned by the men of Nineveh who repented with much less evidence than we have. And sadly, when Jesus returns, there will be no second chance given then. And so, if you haven't yet turned to God, to know him, to know not only escaping judgment, but forgiveness of sins, life, times of refreshing, well, now would be a great time to do that, to take Jesus up on his offer to know God, to know the one we were made to be in relationship with, not trying to run away from him because that's futile, to come back to know him as our God and saviour and to live for his glory. That's something that's really worth celebrating, isn't it? We saw the excitement of the Matildas this week celebrating their victory, but that fades, doesn't it? The victories come and go but there's great rejoicing in heaven over the turning of a sinner to God. And that's rejoicing that's not just temporary, but eternal. Let's give our lives for what really lasts. Let's pray.